Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, na'hamaduhu wa nusalli ala rasulihil kareem amma ba'ad. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Continuing in fihi ma fihi. Um, what page are we on? Page three, bottom. Page three, okay, very good. Okay, oh yeah, this is still the story about the prisoners. Yeah. All right, uh, let's begin with, then the Prophet continued. Then the Prophet continued, saying, Now God says, O prisoners, if you turn away from your former belief and perceive me in both states of fear and hope, and realize that you are subject to my will in all conditions, I shall release you from the state of fear. I shall restore you to, I shall restore to you all your property that has been plundered and lost. Nay, I shall restore it to you many times over. I shall pardon you and to your wealth in this world at I shall join the wealth of the next world also. Okay, so what's being promised to them? A number of things are being promised if they embrace the Prophet, peace be upon him. If they embrace the Prophet and the oneness of Allah, then they will be freed and they will be given even more than what they had before. Yeah. And then taking it even further, think of uh, what's being said. So, uh, part of accepting the Shahada is is that you turn to Allah both in fear and hope. Okay. So we will speak quite a bit about fear and hope throughout this text, but you're turning to Allah in both, say, both situations, and you're realizing that in all cases you are subject to Allah's will. Okay. And think about what that means. <clears throat> you can reach a point where you truly understand that Allah is controlling everything, and Allah never gives you anything you can't handle. Okay. Which means, potentially, that should wipe away your fear. Because fear is, I'm afraid something bad's going to happen. Right? And so, if I have full confidence, thorough confidence, that Allah is controlling everything, and nothing uh, that he that he sends my way in terms of struggle is beyond what I can handle, and nothing that he turns my way beyond in the uh, as prosperity is beyond what I can handle. Um, then it's a matter of living life, just going through the maze, uh, as opposed to being afraid of what's going to hit you. Okay. There's a certain physiological type of fear that everyone has, right? So let's say, you know. Um, your plane is descending suddenly really fast. Physiologically, you're gonna, fear is going to take over as a fight-or-flight mechanism. Okay. Mm -hmm. But there's another par uh, part of fear that's just purely imagined. Okay. You know, like the ayah that we talked about in, in the other class, Faith Foundations, of, of the person walking through the, the, the rainstorm, and there's thunder and lightning. What do they do to protect themselves? They stick their fingers in their ear out of fear of death. Okay. And how much is that going to protect them? Not at all. They're still in the thunderstorm but it's taking away their imagination. And so, if I can truly appreciate that Allah is controlling all of everything that happens around me, then that should wipe away a lot of my fear. The other extreme of that is resignation, fatalism. This is what you find in the subcontinent, where people completely give up, and thus they have an excuse not to do any work. Because the view is that, all right, if, uh, if my plane is meant to crash, it's going to crash. I don't have to do anything about it. No, you still have to go through the effort of trying to survive. That's the lesson of Hajar, alayhi salam, that she could have just lived in a fatalistic way, sitting there, just waiting for food to show up. And if it doesn't, then we die. Okay. 
So see what we're saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one level of consciousness is to truly understand that Allah controls everything that's going to happen. Okay. But then your reaction to that still needs to be active, not passive. And so, if you can subject, if you understand you are subject to Allah's will in all conditions, I shall release you from the state of fear. And then, as you mentioned, you're going to be free. All that you've plundered, um, all that has been plundered and lost, you're going to get it all back. So, this is a, this think of what a deal they're being offered. Okay. So, even forget the stuff, Audhubillah, for a moment about Allah, the Prophet, peace upon him, saying, I'll give you back all of your wealth. All you have to do is accept me. Okay. But then right afterwards, he asks him. So let's go. We'll go to the, this next part now. Yeah. So. Isn't that contradictory? Well, let's see. So Abbas says, let's go to the next part. Um, I repent, said Abbas. I have turned away from what I was. God requires a token of this claim you make. Okay. So why is he asking that? Well, let's read, the, read that line of poetry. It is easy to lay claim to love, but the proof of it remains otherwise. Okay. So why does... The prophet, peace upon him, said you have to give a token of the claim. Actions speak louder than words. You can say one thing but mean something else with your heart. Exactly. Yeah. But okay, you continue. In God's name, ask Abbas, uh, what token do you require? So he even says, Bismillah. So there, I've said it, you know, with my tongue. So what do you need? Give to the armies of Islam, said the prophet, and all the wealth you have left. If you have truly become a Muslim, and wish well to the religion and community of Islam, give in order that the army of Islam may be strengthened. Okay, so, so what is the deal that the Prophet is promising? If you embrace me, which means if you embrace the Shahada, um, I will give you all your wealth back. Okay? So Abbas, he's telling Abbas, okay, you give all your wealth, and you're going to get it back. And, and why is he saying to give to the armies of Islam? What would be the logic there? Like not looking from a religious perspective? Yeah, just strategically. To strengthen their armies? But meaning, why would the prisoners have to do that? As like a motion of surrender? Well, even simply, if it's saying you're becoming Muslim now, yeah. you're joining the enemy, so um, give your money to support the enemy. Yeah, if you're on our side now. Yeah. Okay, so then what does he say? Um, o Apostle of God. So that's probably Ya Rasulullah. Yeah. What have I left? Everything has been plundered. I have not so much as an old straw mat left to my name. So he's saying everything in terms of lip service, right? Bismillah, Ya Rasulullah. So, all the, so in terms of the tongue, he's, he's saying everything he should be saying. But then he says, I got no more wealth. And then the prophet, peace be upon him, responds. See, said the prophet, you still have not become righteous. You have not turned away from what you were. Let me tell you how much wealth you have, where you have hidden it, and whom you have entrusted it, and in what spot you have buried it. Oh no, cried Abbas. Did you not entrust a certain amount to your mother? Did you not bury it under a wall and stipulate that if you came back, she was to give it to you? And if you did not return alive, she was to spend it on a certain thing, give so much to a certain person, and keep a certain amount for herself. When Abbas raised his finger and professed the faith sincerely, saying, O Prophet, in truth I used to think that you had good luck through the machinations of fortune, as did many ancient kings like Haman, Shaddad, and Nimrod. However, when you told me what you said, I knew for certain that this good fortune is mysterious and divine in in origin. And then finish it off. 
You speak the truth, said the prophet. The time I heard the gir- that girdle of doubt you wore inwardly snap. This, this time, time yeah. Oh, sorry, this time. This time I heard that girdle of doubt you wore inwardly snap. The sound of its breaking reached that ear of mine that is hidden in the depths of my soul. Whenever anyone's girdle of doubt, polytheism, or infidelity snaps, I can hear the sound of it breaking with my inner ear, my soul's ear. Now you have truly become righteous and professed the faith. Okay, so so step by step, what's the process here? Um, Abbas uh, is saying, okay, I am embracing, you know, I'm doing tawbah, I'm turning to Allah, I'm turning back to Allah. I'm saying everything, Bismillah, Ya Rasulullah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But the Prophet, peace be upon him, is saying, essentially, prove it. Okay. And then the Prophet illustrates that he has knowledge of where Abbas had the money hidden. And so there's two things going on here. Abbas either has forgotten that he has this wealth, or he's lying. Okay. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, is detecting that. Okay. And then he gives him detail about where the wealth is. And then Abbas now says, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, is saying, I heard this, this yoke or girdle of doubt around your heart, this knot around your heart snap. And this is also a hint of how doubt works. Doubt is like something has been tied around your heart. <coughs> and you're waiting for the moment for it to snap or to untie the knot. And so we have three obstacles. One is doubt, one is kufr, or here in order it says one is doubt, one is polytheism, one is infidelity. So one is doubt, one is shirk, and one is kufr. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, could probably also <coughs> see the difference in Abdullah, uh, Abbas's face in that moment, too. Um, we're now he's allowed Iman to enter his heart. And this is sometimes what what we need. So Abbas needed something miraculous to believe in the Prophet, peace be upon him. Because again, this is the Prophet talking, and this is the Prophet's uncle. And the Prophet himself, peace be upon him, is saying, I'm going to give you all your wealth back. So you know it is true. I mean, if anyone knows it's true, it's Abbas. Right? And still... You know, he had doubt in his heart. So, and, and so what is the nature of doubt? It's literally like someone has tied a knot around your heart. Okay. And so in his case, he needed a miracle to happen. That was the miracle that the prophet, peace be explained, you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. So you see, for some people, what they need for faith to enter their heart or faith to strengthen their heart is something miraculous but we'll see more things over the course of the text. And a miracle is sometimes something that seems like it can't be explained, but sometimes it's just the perfect thing that happens at the perfect time. For other people, a miracle is not enough. And then once that knot is broken or loosened, then it becomes possible for this person to start transforming. Any thoughts or reflections? I was trying to go back to the beginning of the story yeah. yesterday to see why we were talking about this. Yeah. What was the point of this? 
So a few things. <clears throat> the first story is about the scholar and the prince, right? And, and so here we're having the prophet, peace be upon him, and Abbas, one of the leaders of Mecca. So it's still kind of a parallel, the scholar and the prince. Yeah. And the situation here is that the prince, meaning Abbas, meaning one of the leaders of Mecca, used to have so much wealth, and now he's a prisoner of the scholar, the prophet, peace be upon him. Right? So that's the parallel that's going on here. And you'll see this theme going on throughout the entire text. I mean, often it's Rumi in, in, in his local prince. Okay. And so what's taking place here is a story of someone who, from a dunyawi perspective, was on top. Okay. And now him and all the rest of the kuffar are at the bottom. Okay. And they were still insisting on rejecting the prophet, peace be upon him. To the point that, you know, first they were saying, you know, look at him, he's just like us. He's, he's getting excited over dominating us. And then Abbas himself is saying, I just thought you were lucky. And I thought that's why you're on top. You just got lucky. As opposed to the fact that, you know, it was in Allah's will for you to, for the Prophet, peace be upon him, to be divinely guided and, um, and win over them. Right? And so even, so some people need to hit rock bottom for their hearts to open. Some people need to see a miracle for their heart to open. So these people hit rock bottom, that wasn't enough for them. Yeah. Abbas hit rock bottom, that wasn't enough for them. He has the prophet, peace be upon him, that wasn't enough for him. But then he saw something miraculous. And so different people need a different door to walk through to embrace faith. So uh, a miracle for someone else might be just the exact perfect thing happening at the perfect time, right? But I mean, I'll give one example. Um, um, when, and I might have already shared this, when I was on Hajj, this is 17 years ago, and, and my then wife, um, she really, really wanted to pray in the Hatim, right? You know, that place next to the Kaaba. And we're doing Tawaf, and I know she really wanted to pray in the Hatim. And, and, and so I am asking Allah, you know, Allah, can you, can you make it so she can pray in the Hatim? Because this is the Hajj crowd. It's impossible almost to get anywhere. And literally in that moment, this corridor of people opened up, right? And it was like a straight line. Okay? And I don't even know if she noticed it. She just walked right through to the Hatim. I mean, literally, it was from her straight to the Hatim and just went all the way through. Okay. Now, it could be a coincidence, but, I mean, I'm kind of a smart guy, right? I mean, I'm saying it seems to be a little bit more than a coincidence because it was a straight corridor. It wasn't like she found her way in this winding passageway. It was straight, and the corridor was like three feet wide, okay? literally just at that moment. I'm not saying it's because of my prayer. It could have been her prayer. could have been someone else's prayer, um, but that's literally what happened in that moment. And so I think those things definitely happen. I don't anticipate that I'm going to see the sea splitting into two mountains of water you know, anytime soon, right? especially if I'm trying to escape the pharaoh or something, right? But the perfect thing may happen at the perfect time and in such a way that it still fits within dunya. Okay. So yeah, <clears throat> I think those things can happen. Um, uh, one of my students, um, this is about a month ago, it was her birthday and her dad had to go to work. And so take this for whatever it means to you. Her dad had to go to work. And, and then she is praying out loud, Oh, Allah, please make it that my dad you know, can stay home. 
and go to my birthday party. Okay. And so the dad leaves for work, and his car breaks down. Okay. And then he was able to get it started up and running again, then it breaks down again. I think it broke down three times, and finally he gave up and he came home. And so, at least chronologically, she made a prayer, and the prayer seems like it was answered. Or we could say it's just coincidence, but the perfect thing happened at the perfect time. That's what some people need. So we said some people need to hit rock bottom, some people need uh, something miraculous, some people need something like the prophet, peace be mine, in front of them. But we'll keep going further. Okay, let's go to the next story. All of this I said to the Barbana. I told him, you who have become the head of Islamdom have said, I sacrifice myself and my intellect and all my power of deliberation and judgment for the continued existence and spread of Islam. But since you have relied upon yourself and not looked to God to realize that everything is from him, God has caused that very endeavor of yours to be the cause for the diminution of Islam. You have united yourself with the Tar... Tatar, 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 whom you aid to annihilate the Syrians and Egyptians, and thus lay, and thus to lay waste the realm of Islam. The very thing that was to be a cause for the expansion of Islam has become the cause for its diminishment. Therefore, in this state, which is a fearful one, turn to God, give alms that He may deliver you from this evil condition, which is fear. Do not despair of Him, even if He has cast you down from a state of obedience into disobedience. Because you thought your obedience was in and of yourself, you have fallen into disobedience. Even now, in this disobedience, despair not, but turn humbly to God, for he is almighty. If he turned that obedience into disobedience, he can turn this disobedience into obedience and give you repentance. He can, prov- he can provide you the means to strive anew on behalf of the propagation of Islam and to be a strength for Islam. Despair not, for none despaireth of God's mercy except the unbelieving people. Okay. So, Parvana is probably the, the prince. I used to know what this title meant, but now at this moment I've forgotten. So, Rumi is again the scholar. Parvana is the prince now. And, and he's, he just told that whole story, uh, all the material above. So, the hadith about the scholars and the princes, this story. And so now he says, Okay, you became the head of this whole Muslim world. Okay. And you said, I sacrifice everything for the spread of Islam. But Rumi says, you still have not surrendered to Allah. Okay. Now, one level of surrendering to Allah is to surrender your, your, your body, which means you're doing the ibadahs, your five daily prayers. And higher than that is your, your surrendering your consciousness and your aql, your intellect to Allah. Which doesn't mean you're shutting your mind off. It means you're acknowledging your limits. And the basic limit is to understand that Allah controls everything. Again, that shouldn't make someone passive. And so he hasn't done that. And so what is he relying upon? He's relying upon his own skills and cleverness. And the result is that he made a treaty with the Tartars. The Tartars are the Mongols. And the Mongols were coming through, wiping out the entire Muslim world. And then that treaty basically helped the Tartars wipe out the Syrian and Egyptian Muslims. So he tried to force things to happen his way. And this is another challenge for some people. Uh, you see this especially in activists and reformers. The Muslim activists, Muslim reformers, 
whether or not they realize that they're trying to force things to work their way. And then they get frustrated that the community is not working alongside with them, or they'll give you this whole you know, presentation of Islam that is, in their eyes, uh, reformation, okay? fixing things, but uh, essentially they're not surrendering to Allah. They're not including surrender to Allah as being part of this. Can't you say that's persistence or perseverance? Like try again, no Yeah, I mean that would be a different thing. And and how do we then measure that? You're looking at how are people responding. So so there's one uh, one group uh, of Muslims who um, are basically making these relationships with certain people in the Jewish community, and they're getting criticized because they're bypassing the Muslim community to do it. And they're bypassing the Palestinians who do it because it's, it's a Jewish community in Israel, okay. and they're getting criticized a lot for it, and and even to the point that there's the ayah, you know, when they said to them, "Do not make mischief in the world," they say we're only reformers and we're only peacemakers, but they're actually the mischief makers and they don't even realize it. And so one way to measure it is to pay close attention to how what type of feedback you're getting from the community itself. Community as a whole will not be wrong. Uh, individual people in the community will be wrong. Okay. And so what am I saying is that you look at the criticism that a person's receiving and then take that into consideration. Right? And those are ways to, to test that. And so yeah, your point is important that someone should not give up on persistence and such. And in his case, it's kind of open what he's done. He was trying to be the savior of the Muslim world and instead he, his choices are leading to more and more destruction that he was supposed to be the very thing that saved the Muslims, but he's become the very thing that's causing his, his um, destruction. Now, how does this really play out? <clears throat> For these types of issues, it's very, very important that someone who is doing any sort of work for the Muslim community, whether it's trying to do the work of reform or trying to do activism, they must be people who are making their prayers. Everyone is going to be at a different level of faith, and there's a lot of Muslims here who don't make their prayers. But if it's someone who's going to take on the role of being an activist, they have to make their prayers. Why? Because it's an act of submission. So I can't serve Allah by overriding Him. I actually say people who are doing community service have to do the hajjud. If your goal is to serve Allah, you have to serve Allah in His terms. Otherwise, unintentionally, you're overriding him. What do you think? Sorry, take your time, take your time. Wait, what was the last thing you said? So, so you have to serve Allah on his terms. Okay. And you might find yourself unintentionally overriding him. So, for example, if I say the activism that I'm doing is more important than my prayers, I'm overriding Allah. Because prayers are one of the most important things I can do. Now, there's going to be the moments where there might be a time conflict or something like that. I'm speaking of the general situation, right? And that becomes a very, very important thing for people who are activists. And what else is then taking place? That if I have the consciousness that I have to serve Allah, that is going to then influence my decisions. And in some of those moments, I may make a small decision that can either have tremendous benefit or tremendous uh, destruction. Okay. Now, it doesn't mean that if I'm making all my prayers, all my decisions are going to be upright. 
but it's more likely, right? If my intention is to serve Allah. So then, making that more general to everybody, should that be the first step for everyone? Generally, yeah. I mean, if we have a brand new Muslim, usually my first step is to try to get them closer to the Prophet, peace be upon him. And early on, even before I get them to quit haram, I try to get them to start making their prayers. So yeah, as-salat imad al-deen. Salat is the, the pillar of deen. And then that's what some people need. So even above understanding? Well, understanding is an ongoing process. Like, how much would they need to understand? So we're assuming they've already understood the shahada to become Muslim. Mm -hmm. What else do they need to understand? Because I think that's something that is ongoing. That could be another one of those questions that we'll forget that you should think about over the course of the week. And we'll probably forget about it, but yeah. Yeah. And then, <clears throat> and so thus, he's caused all this devastation, but Rumi is still saying, still turn back to God and give sadaqah. So one of the blessings of sadaqah is protection from destruction. Good. And so it's a good practice to do sadaqah, especially if someone is struggling with faith. Because that's what he's struggling with right now. Okay. So there's two parts here. Don't give up and give sadaqah. And that will open other people's hearts. So what we're seeing throughout this, this particular essay, this discourse, is different ways that a person's heart might open up. Okay. So he's the one who put you, uh, who made you downcast, and he can make you in obedience. And so turn back to him humbly. And then he can still help you fulfill your intention. So he says, my purpose... Oh, did you read that next paragraph here? Okay. Uh, actually, i got to stop here because i got to run to a meeting. Okay. So let's stop right with this paragraph that says, my purpose. All right. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilaik wa akhir da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.